0: Spring break, hope your spring break was restful, fun, great, full of sun, full of stuff. I don't, I don't know. I'm glad you made it safely back to campus. So, if you've been with us, we're doing a series called "This Is Awkward." And if, were, if this is your first time at RUF, you're getting the full on, because RUP is just an awkward place. So, the series is pretty fitting. Um, so, please embrace, be patient with us, embrace our awkwardness. I don't, whichever one um, you feel like doing. So what I want to do tonight is talk about this idea of, um, I, I simply want to call it, I have a reality problem. And here's where this idea is kind of coming from for me. You can, you can look at it in your, in your uh, handout. Russell Brand, I don't know how you feel about him. I have a lot of thoughts. Um, but recently, in the last few years, he's become kind of like this weird prophet, in a sense, where he'll say things that small P prophet where he'll say things that we as Christians can really get behind. And he wrote this article probably two years ago. His recent one was on porn. If you haven't seen that, it's definitely worth watching. He just sort of rants about porn, and it's really, really good. But two years ago, he wrote this article that was sort of like an editorial wrestling with uh, just being honest about his drug addiction. And there's this line from the article, from this editorial, that will sort of stay with me forever, I hope. Here's what he said. He's kind of thinking about just describing his story, and in this brilliant moment that just blew me away, he said this. You have it in your handout. He said, "Drugs and alcohol are not my problem. Reality is my problem. Drugs and alcohol are my solution. They're my way of dealing with reality." What's he saying? He's saying, "Listen, reality is reality for a lot, of, for all of us. We're going to say tonight is a hard thing. Reality is something that, if we're being honest, we want to escape." We want, to, we want to avoid, we want to deal with it one way or another. And what I love about the passage we're going to look at tonight is that I really do think that conversion and the Christian life is in a sense coming back, coming back, coming back into reality. The reality of who God is the reality of who you are, the reality of what life in this kingdom looks like. So what I want to do tonight is look at Isaiah 6. Look at a passage that I think, it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's a huge passage. It's a classic passage. I think there's everything in here. This is conversion. But to, to be a Christian, you feel like, not only do you get converted at the beginning, but you get, to be a Christian means there are like lots of different conversions throughout your life. In the sense of you're coming back into the reality and the bigness of who God is, you're coming back into the reality of the sinfulness of who you are. And I want to unpack that a little bit tonight by looking at Isaiah 6. So I'm going to read it for us. This is Isaiah from his story. It's really, this is his conversion story, which is what I think is so fascinating. And I'm reading uh, from the bulletin. Here we go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above them were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell the people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The grass withers, the fire face, the word of the Lord stands forever. Let him pray for us, and then we're going to get into it. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for Scripture. Lord, we thank you that you... Have in your providence and your sovereignty recorded moments, stories like these for us, uh, for our benefit. And Lord, some of us, uh, we read this passage and we can relate on some level of what it looks like to come into the presence and to see you in a way we've never seen you before and be just absolutely in awe, absolutely blown away, absolutely crushed by the way of your glory in ways that are good and freeing, in ways that led to our salvation. And Lord, some of us, we read this and we've been around the church, we've, we've come to our rough, we've been in places like this, we've never experienced this. We've never experienced anything like this where you move from being a concept to being a reality. And Lord, I pray as we look at this passage, as we unpack it, Lord, would you be gracious to meet us here in this place? Would you be gracious to fill even this room uh, with the train of your robe of your glory? Would you crush us with the weight of the gospel in ways that free us and lead us to the joyous freedom of what it means to be a Christian? Lord, we pray these things. In Christ's name, amen. So the question I'm asking tonight is, how do you go, Russell Brand sort of shares this story, and in that story he really talks about being self-absorbed in ways that were self-destructive. How do you go from living a life that is self-absorbed or self-destructive into the joyous freedom that we find in Scripture, into the joyous freedom of what it means to, be, to serve the Lord with gladness? And I think this story gives us that blueprint. I think this story shows us the way of what has to happen in our lives for us to sort of experience what Isaiah experienced here, to, to sort of come to this place where maybe you came here tonight, you're the last thing you're expecting you know I love thinking about Isaiah. He comes into this he comes literally to church, and the last thing he's, the last person he's expecting to meet in church is God, and God shows up and, think, and, ch- and changes everything. To move from, from kind of coming, maybe you're a nominal Christian, or maybe you just are a little bit feel stuck. in a a sort of bad or dry place, a burned out place, from moving from that, from being self-absorbed and maybe in self-destructive ways, to being what he is at the end, here I am, send me, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. Because if you read the end of this passage, the job description is pretty, like, if you read this job description where where basically the Lord says, hey, I'm going to give you a ministry in which no one will listen to you at all. And not only that, but they're going to hate you. And like none of us, if we're being honest, unless we're grasping the gospel in the ways Isaiah begins to will say, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm going to go ahead and own this right now. I don't wear t-shirts because of the pit stains, so let's embrace that awkwardness right now. Let's just get that out of the way for my sake. Um, Not for your sake, for my sake. (laughs) Let's keep moving. How do you move from this life of self-absorption to serving the Lord with gladness? Well, there are three things, a blueprint, three things that have to happen uh, in order for that to happen for you and for me. There has to be a, a God quake. There has to be a self-quake, and there has to be a gospel quake. And I am shamelessly stealing this from Tim Keller. A God quake, a self-quake, and a gospel quake. First, there has to be a God quake. What do I mean by that? Two things. Two things happen to Isaiah here. Here's the first one. God becomes more believable. God becomes more real. Here's Isaiah. He's, he, w- he would be a nominal Christian, we would say. He's someone who's a churchman. He's, an, he's of the elite of the society. He goes to church. He obviously is going in this day. And yet, God is more of a concept to him. God has yet to move from concept to reality. What's the difference between a concept and a reality? A concept is something you can play with in your mind. A concept is something you can leave tonight and go think about, talk about it with your friends. It's kind of fun. You can sort of play with it. Where does it fit? fun stuff. A reality is something very different. A reality realigns your entire life. A reality moves you. It has to change you. It has to, to, to sort of crush you. It enters into your life in a way that's unavoidable. In other words, a concept is something you, you can sort of assign some kind of meaning to and play with it in your mind. A reality is something that you have to realign your entire life around. The way that I was thinking about this is thinking about uh, the first time in my life where death moved from a concept to reality. I was 12 years old. The idea of death seemed absolutely like, who does? You know, I, had new, I had known no one that had died, and then suddenly when I was 12, two people very close to me died. My, one of my best friends committed suicide in seventh grade, and then my grandfather died a few months after, and death suddenly moved from this concept that was fun to joke or laugh or talk about with friends to this reality that literally changed. For me, it began me asking the big questions of life. Who is God? What does he want? Where was he when they died? Those sorts of questions. And one of the things that happens, one of the hugest things that happens for Isaiah here is God becomes more believable. He, he moves from being a concept to this crushing reality. What's interesting about the word glory, the way he describes it is the Lord filled the temple with glory. Now, what's interesting about that word glory in the Hebrew is it literally means weightiness. And so what Isaiah is saying is, listen, the weightiness of God filled the room. It crushed me. And God became realer than he's ever been. And in that moment, he's absolutely changed. He's utterly changed. God became real to him. But he didn't just become real. He didn't just become more believable in that sense. He also became more beautiful. And this is the thing. If you want to know, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? One of the ways to describe it is God moves from being useful to you, a useful concept you sort of look to to maybe bless your life, to being beautiful to you. And if you have him, you have everything. You don't need his gifts. You don't need his blessings. Why? Because you have the greatest blessing of all, which is to know him and to be known by him. To love him and to be loved by him. And God all of a sudden for Isaiah, as he draws near and crushes him with the weight of his glory, Isaiah, for the first time in his life, God becomes beautiful to him. Here's my question for you. Has God ever become beautiful to you? I love the way that Jonathan Edwards talks about it in Religious Affections. He talks about it. He gives this really simple illustration where he essentially says this. I've said it before. You've heard it. He says, there's a world of difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting that honey is sweet. We just got back from Greece. And so my wife does this thing where she likes to, like, take stuff home. Like, I'm the kind of guy that's like, let's enjoy it there. Let's don't, like, buy like there was this little strip where we stayed that was sort of like the Myrtle Beach of Greece, and she's like going to all the shops and like buying stuff. And one thing she brought back was honey, because they have honey. They we asked one of the local pastors, "What should you bring back?" And He said, "You can't get honey like you can get here. You can't get olive oil like you can get here." So she like got both of those things, and then some other useless stuff. Glad she's not here, that she's like decorating our house with, um, which is great. Love her, so great. <laughs> so, but she brings this honey back, but but. It's, this is such a simple illustration, but for me, it's, this is this is one of the ways to talk about what happens for Isaiah here. He's probably hurt. Listen, Isaiah, the way you need to think about Isaiah is this is the way I was thinking about earlier. This is kind of how, what you need to know about him. He's sort of Prince Harry meets Stephen Hawking meets J.K. Rowling. He's incredibly unbelievably gifted. He's an incredibly gifted writer, which is why we read his stuff 3,000 years later. He's an incredibly gifted thinker. He was elite of the elite in, in terms of academics in his time, and also he was sort of his brother was connected to the king he was in a sense a royal and he's been he's around the church his whole life he's known as a life that, that god is true that god is real that you should worship him but in this moment god moves from being from he moves from knowing the sweetness of god to tasting to experiencing the sweetness of god uh, i've always loved the way in uh, narnia where Lucy and Prince Caspian, she does that thing where Aslan's never he's nowhere to be seen. And he does that thing where he shows up at the end. And Lucy, I love this, my favorite, one of my favorite moments in Narnia where Lucy looks at him and she simply says, Aslan, you've grown. And he says that thing where he says, no, my child, I haven't grown, but you have. And every year you grow, I will become bigger. And what's happening, what does it mean to be converted? What it means to be converted is God goes from this concept to this beautiful reality in your life. That begins to change everything. He goes from being this part of your life that you want to fit in. This is what you do in college. This is why some of you are here. You are like, where God, you know that God should fit somewhere in your life. And so what you're trying to do is fit him in somewhere. And you should fundamentally miss what it means to be a believer. Because you don't fit a God this huge into your life. A God this huge reorients your entire life and realigns it around his beauty and his truth. And his goodness and his bigness. And his power, and his wisdom, and everything that he is? Has that happened for you? And I don't mean like, has you, have you, had, like I've never had this sort of, where literally I had this vision. But I've had something, I've had something of God becoming real. Has God become real to you? That's what it means to be a Christian. So there has to be a God quake. But in the second, and these all get together, there has to be a self quake. What do I mean by that? Again, two things sort of happen. On the one hand, God for Isaiah becomes far better, far more holy than he ever thought him to be. What's fascinating is, uh, you know, if you, if you listen to what the angels are crying. Now, when you think about the angels, this is interesting to me. Like, I think, well, sometimes when I think about angels, I think about those little, like, pieces of art I see where they're little, like, baby angels, like, playing, like playing little instruments. And I think it would be better, this one commentator, I love what he said. He said, think about it, if you've ever been to like an Air Force base and seen like the rockets just shoot across the sky. Like I grew up in Sumter Shaw Air Force Base. We would go, I, I hated it, but I kind of loved it. We would go and watch these shows where literally jets would just fly and you could see the stream through the sky and there were powerful, you know, movements and sounds that shook. If they flew close enough to the ground, it shook everything. That's more the picture of what's happening in the temple. And as these angels are sort of shooting around, I guess I can say like that, flying around. They're saying holy, holy, holy. Now for us we kind of think, what is like when I think about God's holiness, let me say two things here. When I think about God's holiness, sometimes I do like I imagine the Duggar family. And I don't know what to do with it. Because I kind of feel like holiness means I've got to sort of be in like a like a denim jumper and sort of not engage the world at all. Like I have this sort of you know, thinking about holiness where it's a word that feels to me and that can't at all be what's happening here because the way it leaves Isaiah is not like, oh, this seems cheesy. <laughs> like, Isaiah here is not thinking, man, this is cheesy. <laughs> oh, he's thinking he's, he's literally speechless and he's so in awe. Because part of God's holiness is his goodness. Can I say it like, it's his betterness than us. Oh, I love the way Anne Lamott says that. We're, she basically says, you know, this idea that, that we essentially think about, you know, thank God that God doesn't, Uh, confuse us for him because we confuse him for us all the time where essentially our view of God is he's just a little bit better version of us and so when he's just a little bit better version of us then we sort of have this little bit lower standard that's pretty manageable, pretty doable as long as we're sort of better than maybe our peers or as long as we're sort of better than our roommate or as long as we're sort of just you know above a little bit of whatever standard we define it to be, then we're okay and you can see from the outset like Isaiah gets, Isaiah, who is, again, Prince Harry meets Stephen Hawking meets J.K. Rowling. He is proud beyond all get out. And God crushes his pride. And part of the way God crushes his pride is by his holiness. Now, when they cry, holy, 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 what's interesting is, in the Hebrew way of talking, the way you describe something as, like, very big you would describe it with the same word. You'd use it twice. So there's a place in Second Kings where they say, they describe these giant pits, and they call them pit pits. And the idea is there are these, you use the word twice to emphasize the hugeness of it. This is the only place in scripture where three Hebrew words are put together. Holy, holy, holy. Why? Because nothing on earth comes close to touching the absolute majestic glorious beauty and otherness of God in his goodness in his purity in his being and Isaiah realizes I, I'm nothing and this is the second thing in the self book he realizes in, in a sense how much better God is than he thought and in the second place he realizes how much worse he is than he thought and that's why he does that thing where he says woe to me Woe is me. Literally, that was the prophet's way of cursing something. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus says the woes to the Pharisees. And what's beautiful about what it means to be a Christian is you can pronounce a curse upon yourself because you realize your brokenness is beyond your your repairing. You realize that you are far worse than you've been pretending to be and that you ever thought you were. You realize that you are far, far worse. You are far more proud than you ever thought yourself to be. You are far more lustful than you ever thought yourself to be. You are far more greedy. You haven't found it yet. For those of you who have jobs are starting to find it. Those of you who love your savings account, maybe you know it a little. You're far more greedy than you knew yourself to be. You're far more racist than you knew yourself to be. You're far more, you fill in the blank. And Isaiah realizes this. Now, it's interesting why does he focus on his lips? Well, most likely Isaiah's gift in his day, again, he's a writer, but he's also a great orator. Orator. He's known for his speaking, he's known for his debating, and he realizes, here's what he realizes. He realizes he's used the very gifts that God has given him to build the kingdom of himself. Instead of, like the angels, to give praise and glory to the kingdom of God and to God himself. He realizes he has been so absorbed with himself That even the part of himself that he used to like becomes ugly to him, becomes disgusting to him. Because he realizes his motivations behind it were so messed up that if anyone could see into their heart, into his heart, they would be horrified. That's why I love when C.S. Lewis talks about his own heart and he describes it. He says, when I looked into my own heart, I saw a zoo of lusts, of beasts, of things that scared me and horrified me. And that's exactly what Isaiah learns about himself. There's a scene in one of, my favorite, one of my favorite conversations in all of movie history. is in this movie called The Big Kahuna. It's Kevin Spacey, Danny DeVito, and a young Peter Fascinelli For my Twilight fans. Don't acknowledge yourself. Um, you can, R.F. is a safe place. You can, love, you can like Twilight and still be loved by Jesus. That's a comforting word tonight. Uh, but there's a scene, a conversation, they're all salesmen. And Peter Fascinelli plays this very sort of obnoxious young Christian. And there's a scene towards the end of the movie where Danny DeVito just conf- just, just has had enough of Peter Fascinelli's character and just lays into him. It's still the best conversation about self-righteousness that I've ever seen, ever. That was a Hebrew way of doing it. Um, and in this conversation, he basically says, listen, let's talk about character. And he says, in this beautiful thing, he says, listen, the, your problem, the reason you don't have character, Danny DeVito is saying to Peter Fasinali, is you don't regret anything. And then Bob, Peter Fassinelli's character says, are you saying to have character I need to do something I should regret? And Danny DeVito in this beautiful moment says, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you've done plenty of things that you should regret, but you just don't know what they are yet. And part of what's happening for Isaiah here is he's beginning to realize what he should regret. And it's undoing him. Because he sees himself for the first time, this is reality. He's just seen the reality of God, who God it, who God really is, and he has to always gets together. He turns around and sees the reality of who he is. There's a story of this traveling salesman from years ago, and he was traveling on trains, and he would stay at this one hotel. And over the years, he got to know this one hotel attendant. And this businessman became a Christian, and he began kind of talking, witnessing to this hotel attendant. And as he was having this conversation, he said, I want to give you a prayer. I'm going to write a prayer for you. And I want you to keep this prayer in your pocket. And I want you to say this prayer. I want you to say it for a month and let's just see what happens. And the prayer was simply this. Lord, show me myself. So he goes away. He hears through other associates that this woman has become incredibly depressed. He goes back a month later. They have a conversation. And she said, the Lord has answered my prayer. And I am utterly depressed. Because I've come to see that I'm far, far worse than I knew myself to be. I had no idea what kind of a person I really was. And he says, good, now let me give you the second prayer. And he wrote down the second prayer. And he said, here's the second prayer. Lord, show me my Savior. And that's what it means to be a Christian. If you've never genuinely prayed, this is like literally, like if I, if I were to give like, sort of like a tangible thing to do tonight, I would love for you to have these two prayers in your pocket. Lord, show me myself. And pray that for a month straight. And as you come to what we sing, and I ask the Lord, when he shows you the hidden evils of your heart, then you begin to pray, Lord, show me my Savior. Show me the one who sees the depths of my ugliness and loves me to the skies and loves me to the depths. And this is the third thing that happens. There's a gospel quake for Isaiah. And this is the the part of the the passage that gets a little bit uncomfortable, that gets a little bit strange. Because here's the scene... If you read it, if you caught it the first time, essentially what happens is Isaiah realizes his uncleanness. And almost at the very moment he realizes his uncleanness, one of the angels does something remarkable. He takes a burning coal from the altar, and instead of consuming Isaiah as a sinner, he applies the burning coal from the altar of sacrifice to the very place Isaiah knows himself to be a sinner, and instead of consuming him, it cleans him. Instead of destroying him, it, 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 it saves him. It heals him. It forgives him. Now what's interesting about that is if you look in the Old Testament, fire is always, always, always a symbol of destruction. The fire of the Lord is always a symbol of judgment. The fire of the Lord is always a symbol of a wrath coming to consume unclean beings. And yet here, this burning coal does not lead to its end. It leads to his salvation. It leads to his forgiveness. What's interesting, what, the way that I like to think about it, is Isaiah came into the temple that day, probably looking to make some sort of sacrifice himself. And instead, something incredible happened. The sacrifice of another was literally applied to him. Here, what does that mean for us? Well, there's, we have to go to another place, another temple that's shaking, another quake that's happening, and it's in Matthew 27. And it's at the very moment, the ninth hour, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he cries that loud cry when he says, my father, my father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that very moment, it says that the temple, the curtain of the the, uh, temple curtain split from top to bottom. The earth began to quake. The rocks began to split. And here's Jesus being consumed. Consumed by the fire. That we might be healed consumed in the temple that we might be converted, that we might be drawn to the father, that we might know the grace of God. This is the gospel. This is always the movement of the gospel. The movement of the gospel is always twofold. We always move from woe is me. Who shall save me to praise be what Paul says in Romans seven, praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the savior of sinners. That's the, the two-fold movement that's happening for him. And we can say it like this. That there's, in this passage, we sort of see, we, you, you always experience both the comfort of the gospel. Who in the world shall, Paul says in Romans 7, who in the world shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to our Lord Jesus Christ, for he can and he will. He's able and willing to save. But also there's, there's a movement of the call of the gospel. It's interesting that Isaiah is not ready for ministry until this very moment. Do you see that? Like some of you are here, you're eager to do ministry. Like When we did the servant team announcement, you were thinking, that's me. I'm going to go do that. Please Please don't talk to me unless you've had a moment like this where the gospel has moved, where you've had a gospel quake in your life, where you see simultaneously your brokenness in the face of God's beauty, but at the same time you see the way you see your Savior. You see yourself and you see your Savior who is consumed that you might be saved. He was consumed, that you might be, who was wounded, that you might be healed. And the call of the gospel, that's what it works for Isaiah. He's comforted by the gospel, but then he's called. And he says, Lord, here am I, send me. And the call of the gospel always does three things in our lives. The call of the gospel always does three things. Uh, We say to the Lord, Lord, make me useful. We go from, Lord, let me use you. Be a vehicle for the things that I want to. Lord, let me serve you with gladness. Take, sh- take me anywhere. Take me to Bates. Take me to Capstone. Take me, you tell me, take me. Take me to that, to that person in my class, the everyone hates. Take me to that place that my church needs serving that no one else wants to do. Take me to that place... Where no one will, while I'll be utterly obscure, take me there, use me. The second thing that happens, we we say, Lord, make me faithful. You know I'm a people whore. I want people to love me or I want to use them to death. You know I'm selfish. Lord, make me selfless. Lord, make me the kind of person that loves people, doesn't use them. Lord, maybe the kind of person that cares literally about what no one else thinks but you and you alone. Lord, maybe the kind of person who listens to no other voice but the voice of Jesus. Lord, maybe the kind of person who is deep, deep, deep deeply steeped in Scripture. Not so others can think that I'm steeped in scripture, but because I love you. And the third thing it does is we say, Lord, make me unassailable. Make me the kind of person that no matter if my life is incredible and I've got the boyfriend that I want and I've got the life, the trajectory that I want or whether I've just been devastatingly broken up with my soulmate and I, I don't know what to do with it, but Lord, make me steadfast, make me firm because whether my life is great or whether my life is the worst, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you love me. You know me. And it doesn't matter because whatever comes my way, You're not going anywhere. That's what the gospel does in us. I'll close with this. So uh, Alyssa uh, went with us to Greece, and she was describing to me the sort of. So one night they had we had uh, some of the um, people had this opportunity to go and be a part of this Iranian church plant, and basically, from what my wife told me, Alyssa told me was this: basically, these Iranians who've become Christians and they're on the run because you can't really be a Christian in Iran. And they're trying to, they literally, you know, she says she met one couple who literally had no possessions. Their only possession were themselves and their child. And they left everything behind to try to find some sort of refuge, some sort of place. And there's this community of Iranian Christians in Greece that are kind of, for a season, will stay there and grow and, and love each other. And then they'll move on to somewhere where they'll end up living. And so she said, she's thinking about this, and then she goes to Target. And she says she's in Target, and she overhears this conversation, and she says the conversation is essentially this, girl, he did what? He got two jet skis and a boat, and what? Oh, he, he got both, he got all three of those things, and in her mind she's thinking, how do I reconcile this world that we live in, and this world that I just got to experience? And more honestly what she was saying is, Lord, how do I not be this person who thinks My life consists of jet, skis, and boats. Not that those are bad things. But my life just doesn't consist of things. The American dream. Whatever. How do I become that kind of person? Where I can sort of say, listen, I can have no possessions. Because I've got the most prized possession possible. I have Jesus. How do I become that kind of person? And the answer is here. Is God beautiful to you? Do you know how broken you are? As the gospel becomes sweet to you. You have those three things. You have everything. You have everything, but not those three things. You've got nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, make us like Isaiah. Lord, I pray even um, tonight that you would become more beautiful, become more believable. Lord, we know this is not something we can do. There aren't steps we can take. We are desperate for the Holy Spirit. We are desperate for you to show up in ways that only you can and change us and realign us and call us to repent and call us to be those kinds of Christians that that say, here, I, here am my Lord, send me. Lord, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm learning lessons. I made some teeth marks. I cursed some blessings. I miss my parents. I miss their mission.